My name's Claire Press, and I'm Vogue Australia's Sustainability Editor. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis, the podcast that unzips fashion's issues. Do you mind if I move the microphone? I just, I need to lounge. <laughs> Devotion, darling. Shut I think as humans, we are major forces to be also reckoned with. And I think creativity always flourishes when there is any type of crisis. That's been the absolute pleasure of is watching talented people who have skills far and beyond mine come together and work collectively. Einstein always said, nature has all the answers. Just look to nature, it has all the answers. Just because I happened to be able to source them easiest, I guess, I was buying original wool jackets from the 1950s. I was buying them at Portobello Market. And a one man's rubbish is another man's gold. For me, it was about age. It was about the attitude of people. And it's about how they're wearing the clothes, why they're wearing the clothes, and capturing a bit of their wisdom and empowering people to look at aging differently. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. We are so hot right now. (laughs) First up, a big thank you to Mimco our sponsors of this week and next week's special two shows all about the United Nations Ethical Fashion Initiative and its work empowering fashion artisans. MIMCO is the Australian accessories label that has been producing collections with the EFI since 2014. Now, that just happens to be the year that I first met this week's guest, an extraordinary man, a changemaker, an exuberant, or shall we say ebullient, all of the words, Italian, and I waved my hands when I said that because that's what he does, and an absolute dynamic powerhouse. That encounter quite seriously changed my working life. So I interviewed this guy and it was actually for Vogue Australia and what he had to say totally changed the way that I thought about my journalism and my purpose and what it was that I wanted to achieve and to be professionally. I seriously don't think that I'd ever given a moment's thought to the phrase ethical fashion before then. So to say that this episode is important to me is a massive understatement. I'm so excited to bring it to you. You're going to meet my friend, Simone Cipriani, founder of the United Nations Ethical Fashion Initiative, a flagship program of the International Trade Centre, a joint agency of the UN and the World Trade Organization. And what it does is connect skilled artisans, or as Simone calls them, micro-producers, in places like Kenya, Ghana, Burkina Faso and Haiti to the international fashion value chain. So working with brands like Mimco, but also Stella McCartney, Vivian Westwood. And Simone sees luxury fashion as a vehicle for development. He talks about ethics and aesthetics and says sweatshops and workers trapped in an endless cycle of cheap, fast fashion is not actually true fashion. I couldn't agree with him more. And he thinks that responsibly produced fashion can help change the world. Actually, 
scratch that. He knows it can because he started this endeavor back in 2009 and nearly a decade later, it is thriving and it's seen thousands of people find fair and ongoing work opportunities. So this is a good news story and it's really inspirational. Be warned, this conversation might just put a rocket up your life. I defy you not to love it and to love him because he's fabulous. For further reading, I'm going to shamelessly recommend my own book because there is a chapter about Simone and the Ethical Fashion Initiative in Wardrobe Crisis. And yeah, remember, this is part one of a two-part series. Next week, I'll be bringing you the podcast that I recorded recently in Nairobi on a trip with Mimco, and it's just gorgeous. So don't forget to tune in to hear from the artisans themselves. As always, dear listeners, I'm so grateful for your ears and I absolutely love hearing from you on social media. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Mrs. Press and you can find Mimco on Instagram at underscore M-I-M-C-O. Simona, I'm delighted that you're here today to do this. I'm delighted too. So nice to see you again. I'm going to embarrass you. Do you know that you're the reason that I'm into sustainability and ethical fashion at all? I'm very proud of it's it. It's you. I'm extremely proud of it. <laughs> extremely proud. Because I interviewed you in 2014, I think, and it was... In to- Milano. No, it was actually it for was Australian here. Vogue. It was on the phone. Ah, it was on the and phone, was, you're right, yes. That was the first time, and it was when you were doing a collaboration with Sass and Bide. Sass and Bide. We had just started with Mimco, yeah. And at that time, Sass and Bide was run by Sarah Jane Clark and Heidi Middleton. And Heidi, yes. And we talked on the phone. Yes. You were in Geneva. Yes. And I put down the phone and said, Ah, oh, I'm going to do a completely different oh, direction. This is so nice of you, and so nice to hear that. Well... It's the truth. Now, we're having this interview right now in the Mimco head office Mm -hmm. in Melbourne, Mm. the Australian accessories brand that you've been working with, with the Ethical Fashion Initiative for how long? Eight consecutive seasons since 2014. 13,000 bags so far, some jewellery, mostly bags made in Kenya, uh, some jewellery made in Haiti, And a growing partnership and a very stable one, which is extremely important for us, because for us what matters is continuity, as we have quite a large amount of people depending on our work. So we have to carry on regular work, we have to provide regular work, and this is why continuity is the best thing, the main thing. Then the second thing is that you have to grow. And with Mimco, we are growing steadily, growing, growing, growing. So there's a commitment. They're very good in in what they do with us in product development and sourcing, but also in marketing, because they are very able to use all the impact assessment that we do, uh, the stories of the artisans, of the producers, and they are very able to engage consumers, something which I really love of Mimco. I have one of these bags, which is from Mimco from a few seasons ago, and I love it because it tells its story just by looking at it. So inside, can we describe it? It's inside, it's got... Inside you have uh, some typical African fabric, uh, which is typical of the Swahili coast, which is used to to line the bag. And outside you have the typical beadwork, Maasai beadwork of that part of Africa. Then you have screen printing, 
which is another of the skills available there. Then you have the embroidery. Then you have uh, the, the leather skills, the cutting and stitching. Now, I'm actually going to read out a bit of the back. So on the back, there's a label. Yes. So if you put this down in a restaurant on the table, people can see the story written. And it's yes, printed absolutely. and it says, this is not charity, this is work. Yeah. When we started this, we started the Ethical Fashion Initiative in the slum of Korokocho. It was a slum in Nairobi and there were many projects, many charity projects. So we wanted to clarify to the audience, to the partners we were going to engage with, that we were something different. Charity is important. Charity is a noble activity which is one of the most noble things the humankind can do. But charity is good when you, you have no, no possibility to operate through a market. So if you have to build a hospital where there is no means or a school, or you have to take care of elderly people, of sick people, you need charity. But in our case, we wanted to engage with these artisans and we wanted to engage by creating jobs. So we wanted to be clear with people. It's about work. We are providing work. We are providing no charity. And this message immediately worked. I remember at the very beginning, we had several places where we worked. We started in Korokocho, but then we, we set up hubs, small hubs in many communities around Nairobi, also outside Nairobi. And we had every morning a queue of people outside the door and people asking ikokazi apa which in swahili means is there work here say it again ikokazi apa and kazi kazi is work and and we said yes eco there is there is you come in and because of this message which was written everywhere so people came to look for work that was a very powerful message in those days and it worked to frame our collaboration with people in the right way from the very beginning we're going to get into the story of how you began. See, si, okay. But first of all, I would just like you to tell us perhaps a bit of an overview about mm. how the Ethical Fashion Initiative works. So it's part of the International Trade Centre, yes, the ITC. So I am a UN officer. We are a UN agency, a joint agency of the UN and the WTO. We are under uh, the General Assembly of the United Nations. The International Trade Organization is Trade Center is mandated to facilitate trade from developing nations and to facilitate the to build the capacities of developing nations to carry out international trade. We are a program, not a project. We are something more structured than a project. We are a regular area of work which is composed by several projects. Each country where we work is a separate project, but we are a program because there's a general business and development model that we have developed. And inside the ITC, we are the only reality that manages directly trade in the sense that we create social enterprises wherever we work and these social enterprises which we manage for some years until they are privatized as it happened in Kenya they are the trade interfacing between the international brands and local artisans so we have a very hands-on approach we are like a supply chain we manage a supply chain. But as we work in development, we also manage several development activities. One is the capacity building, which you need, the training, but then the impact assessment, the social impact assessment, the implementation of labor standards, and also the building of the entrepreneurial capacities. Because the first uh, social enterprise we created in Kenya is today a private company. 
which is still part of the EFI. We we still work together. And that was always your aim for it to become sustainable as a business. Absolutely. It has to become a business. We are doing the same in Haiti. It's a private company now. And we hope to do the same within three years in Burkina Faso and in Mali. Within three years, right? Oh, within three years, absolutely. They have and where to, else do you operate? We also operate in Afghanistan. We just started, which is a wonderful country, thanks to the support of the European Union. We are going to operate very soon in Tajikistan as well. I saw uh, that you'd actually done a recent project with Vivian Westwood that was in yes, Nepal. Yes, in Nepal. We do. We collaborate with this very small brand, American brand that works in Nepal. We just did a fair labor assessment. We found out that labor conditions in Nepal are not good at all. So we have to intervene there. We are very small in the country. That collaboration is about weaving uh, Kashmir and Pashmina into beautiful scarves. We They're called Gaia scarves. Gaia scarves. Ah, it's not bad because this Vivian is a genius and, and the Gaia concept. We work in the Vanuatu Islands where we weave some hats and bags for tourists. There's quite a large tourist market in there. I'm going to the Vanuatu tomorrow right. to see how You're the You're a jet-set man. Where have you come from now? I was in London. Before London, I was in New York. Then I went to London to have meetings at Westwood and with other people. And then here, then the Vanuatu. Then I go to Geneva. Then from Geneva, I go to Afghanistan next week. And then after Afghanistan, I go back to Africa. We don't think automatically of fashion artisans when we think of Afghanistan. I mean, the story It is not that story that we hear. It used to be a place of incredible artisans. Just think that my friend Carlo, who is the CEO of Westwood, used to work in Afghanistan in the 70s, producing for Fiorucci. Really? Yeah, really. And uh, it's a place with a lot of skills related to silk, to wool, to weaving, to embroidery. There's an Afghanistan, an Afghan brand, Zarif Design, which is owned by an Afghan designer, Zulaikha Shersad. She lives in between Kabul and New York. They make beautiful outfits for ladies, very beautiful ones. It's powerful to be able to just change the story. Of course, it's powerful yeah. to be able to provide work opportunities where people can then empower themselves yeah. to move forward. But it's actually powerful to change the story. Yeah, it is. And uh, it is very powerful. And in Afghanistan, you have the opportunity to contribute to that. Afghanistan is a case of failure, of international aid, of failure because of war, because of conflict, because of a very peculiar situation. You think that in the 70s, it was a country, a thriving, mm, a country, a peaceful country, a country where women were able to wear their miniskirts, to go to university, to have jobs, to participate in the life of society, to fully participate. And today, look what it is. This is also a lesson for everybody. We must not take for granted what we have. All the beautiful things that democracy, that civilization brought about for the humankind can be lost. Mm. We have to strive for them. We have to fight for them. Sobering. And But also, we don't necessarily remember that, do we? We, we easily don't. take it for granted. We take everything for granted. And this is what this designer of Afghanistan told me, Zulaika. She told me, when I was young, we had the same things you have in the West. And we took them for granted. We've lost everything, Simone. I was really shocked to hear that because she was very straightforward, very sincere. 
And this is a message for everybody. So by working in Afghanistan, you contribute to bringing about what I called the bright side of civilization, the bright side of the human nature, which is about collaboration, which is about peace, which is about work. There's also a dark side in the human nature, which is there in the country, which is everywhere, but there it is more visible. So you contribute to that, and then you contribute to bring about work for young people, young unemployed people, and this is the workforce of uh, of the Taliban's, this is the workforce of those who oppose an mm. independent and and, uh, and self-sustaining country. Fascinating. And again, I just keep thinking it's the power to tell a different story. It's because, the power to tell a different you know, story. The, which me- is, the media likes to tell the shocking, depressing absolutely. story. Absolutely. And it's the story of people who engage, who want to engage out of all this incredible mess mm. into work, into changing society from within, which is there, mm. which is incredible. The, the resilience of these populations are incredible in the region. There is incredible. Look what happens in Syria. I know a person person who does some accessories in Syria, a Syrian lady, she's very brave. She didn't give up. She's still working in there. She is amazing. Her name is Rania. She's incredible, incredible. You see this everywhere. And people think that the fashion industry, the fashion value chain is a silly thing. No, a very we rage thing, against that. A very frivolous things. Yeah, but it is not. It's a very serious business which allows you to bring about a lot of change all over the world because the majority of the supply chain of fashion extends through the developing world. Absolutely. It allows you also to work in these troubled places. It's, I would call it an agent of change if properly used. It's a very serious thing, fashion. Absolutely. I'm going to call this episode. It's a very serious thing. A very serious thing. I want to dial this back just to try to put some definitions around what we're talking about here. The Ethical Fashion Initiative. When you first began, I think it was around 2011, um, that Business of Fashion responding to Vivian Westwood saying something like, I actually wrote it down. Vivian Westwood said, it's quite incredible to think that we might save the world through fashion. I remember that. Yes, she said it in Kenya. The Business of Fashion story responded with... Ethical fashion remains somewhat fuzzy, idealistic in concept, and has proven difficult to implement in practice. They were completely wrong. Ha! I was going to ask you, how do you feel about they it now? They were completely wrong, and we proved they were wrong, not only through our success, but also through the adoption of this concept by so many companies. Today, We work with all the major fashion groups and we have them engaged in so many activities. I want to tell you something uh, nobody knows. We work on migrants, African migrants in Italy. You know, there's a huge migration crisis. A lot of people are leaving Africa, crossing the Mediterranean in very difficult conditions. A lot of them die in the desert, in concentration camps in Libya, in the Mediterranean, and then they reach Europe in, in very bad conditions. We created a center with an organization, Italian organization, which is called Laimomo in Bologna, where we teach some of these migrants the skills of fashion. So first of all, we have a big fashion brand, Fendi, that engaged with us in there by providing work. Then we had another one, Gucci, that engaged there by providing leather, and they promised to engage by providing work as well. 
And then we have a large amount of these people under training, and one of them has already been hired by a local company, and more companies are coming to hire them. Some of them came to us and told us, we want to go back to Africa to work in this supply chain, because now we have a skill. The power of change owned by the the value chain of fashion, the supply chain of fashion is incredible. It has to be used. So that sentence of business of fashion, to get back to that, was very short-sighted. And it didn't take into consideration the future. The future is about sustainability. Yes. The future is about this. It's only about this. It's only well, about sustainability. we won't sustainability. have a future if the future is Otherwise, not Otherwise, there's no future, exactly, without sustainability. So ethical fashion was about sustainability. Social sustainability, first of all, because people, if people starve in the supply chain, nothing is sustainable, and environmental sustainability well, as well. Well, it's a funny conversation because actually I know that we've advanced a long way, but the idea that we would have unsustainable fashion and that we would pursue that is bonkers, isn't it? It's I mean, bonkers. It's totally bonkers. And it's like having diesel carts everywhere. We proved now that this is poisoning the air. And 10 years ago, 15 years ago, electric carts was a funny idea. A funny idea. Today, it's a reality. Every big brand is going hybrid. Mm-hmm. And you have a brand, Tesla, which is producing luxury cars out of electric engines. And could change our renewable energy situation in Australia and all over the world. And yet you still have people saying we can't change. Of course we can change. We change every day. We change every day. And it's our choice. When I was a boy, nobody told me to save water. Water was taken for granted. Because of the Arno. Because of the Arno, because the the water was coming down the mountains to the town where I lived. It was plenty of water. There was an incredible abundance of water. Yes, you don't leave the tap open, of course, but you have a shower, have a shower. Then growing, you learned how to use the shower properly, how to use the tap water properly, how to save it, how to economize on it, because it's an environmental issue. It's our own personal engagement, which is changing the world. And we do it. Mm. We've changed our habits. My generation has done it. We were, and the next generation is absolutely the not going to stand for it, The next generation, the centennials, are about that finished. These people want to see the real sustainability behind things. They don't buy a lot of fashion products, it's true. But because they don't see the stories behind the products, they don't have the right products that show the real sustainable content. So if that's how we look at sustainability, how do you define ethical fashion or ethics in fashion? If you had to just briefly... First of all, responsibility in the supply chain. Decent, fair, good working conditions for everybody. That's the first point. When you say I am sustainable and in your supply chain people are paid bad, there is forced labor, there is child labor, there is no freedom of collective bargaining and organization. When there is discrimination, where there is bad salary condition, this is unsustainable, this is not ethical. That's the first point. Labor is the first point. Point number one, decent, fair labor conditions. The point number two is environment. Minimize your impact. Today you can do this. 
We know that some productions are more polluting. You know that you have to treat effluents. You know how to use to maximize to uh, uh, the positive impact of what you do by using natural dyes, by using all this. I'll give you an example. In Mali, we are building a huge center for natural dyes, really? which we use to dye our cotton, the cotton we weave. And the natural dyes we use are beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. They are stabilized. They are extremely beautiful. And we do it in Mali, in a developing nation where there is war, where there is a military mission of the UN. every day that it can be done. It can be done if we do it there. Everybody can do it. Can you imagine in Europe or in places where you have stability, where you have peace, where you have all the means? And getting back to that idea of changing the story because people perceive natural dyes as being unstable or the colours aren't good enough. But innovation means that, of course, we move forward in the process. You move forward in the process. And if you use chemical dyes, you have the means today to treat the effluents and everything properly so that it has no impact. You can recycle water. This is so important. Okay, I have another one more definition for you, and that is luxury. What does luxury mean to you? It's having something authentic, which is authentic in terms of making and story. It can be a high technology thing. It can be a manually made product, but it has to be authentic and it has to be unique. But authenticity is more than uniqueness. Authenticity. To know exactly what you have and to know exactly what is the story behind this product. This is authenticity today and this is luxury in the world of today. Luxury is also, uh, it used to be uniqueness and it will remain to a certain extent uniqueness. Uh, Scarcity. uh, Yes, scarcity. uh, Something like this which is made manually. And uh, yes, there is something about this. But it's most of all authenticity and the vehicle to engage in a very effective way in the issues of today. And this is what defines also your personality, because luxury is also to define your personality, to differentiate yourself from the rest. And this, and there are some products that allow this more than others. You have the eye watch on one side, you have the manually made jewel, you have, it's about that. Authenticity. I see this as authenticity. I know that I am not popular when I say this. I have friends who work in the luxury industry. They tell me, no, Simone, it's only about exclusivity. It's only about exclusivity. But it's changing as well. I see the new generations. I see my daughters. I have centennials and millennials in my family. They are 23, 21, 19. And they're completely different. They see things in a completely different way completely different. Well, I mean, I always talk about this, but future generations will look back at the way that we produce things just in terms of take, make and discard and say, what? what? Yeah. I mean, well, what were they doing, this guy? Were they mad? This is what they will say about us. Okay, when you were a kid, you mentioned that when you grew up, you weren't automatically <laughs> knowing you should conserve water. Now, I happen to know, you told me this once, that you, as a child, dreamed of being a mountaineer. Yes. <laughs> That's what I dreamt, a mountaineer and to to go to the Himalayas and to go to Asia because as a child, my father is, is a historian, he writes a lot, a very well-read person, and he took me to a conference of uh, a great uh, scholar of Asian civilization, Fosco Maraini, and Fosco did a presentation 
on uh, one of the expeditions of Professor Tucci to Tibet of 1938. There were these incredible photographs of Tibetan monasteries, of Tibetan Buddhism in black and white, and the mountains on the back. It was so beautiful. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I started dreaming, dreaming about these mountains, dreaming about... So there were mountains in Tuscany, small mountains <laughs> compared to those in the photographs. And, uh, and my parents had the little place on those mountains. So I used to go on the mountains to walk, to ski in the woods and, uh, and dreaming about being on the Himalayas, on the tallest mountains of the world. That's why the first 10 years of my professional life, I worked in Asia. I worked in Asia. I traveled extensively in Asia. That's why I didn't want to go to Africa. It, it's totally by, by coincidence, by chance, that, that I found myself in Africa. And you, that changed my life. And you found yourself, I know that you studied international development and then you yeah. worked with various leather brands from yeah. Italy and NGOs mm. based in Italy. Yeah. But then when you first went to Africa, it was to work in Ethiopia. It or is was that right? to work in brand? Ethiopia. Yeah, at the very beginning it was, I went there to Nairobi as a consultant on behalf of a, of a UN organization. They had approached me in Asia and they told me, why don't you do this assessment for us in Kenya? And I didn't want to go because I was engaged in those days in Vietnam and Indonesia and India. And you were working uh, in leather goods supply chain. Leather goods supply chain, yes. And in, in Indonesia, I was part of a team building a large service center for the shoe industry. I didn't want to get distracted. But, but this person told me, please go. It's a short assignment. You go there two weeks and you do this. And I said, okay, it's also a holiday. And I was given some money by a friend who was supporting some missionaries in the slum of Korokocho. I went there. I gave the money to this guy. This guy was setting up a cooperative of shoemakers. And I decided to engage in that. So I accepted the position in Ethiopia because Ethiopia was very close to Kenya. And so I used to work from Monday to Friday and Saturdays and, and Sundays. And then go to Korokocho? To, 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 to Kenya. Say it again, I said it Korokocho, in Nairobi. And I used to stay there. So this is how the Ethical Fashion Initiative was born. I don't think that listeners, many listeners, would have a handle on what it's like in a place like yeah. Kibera or like... Yeah. Korogocho. Which I can't yeah, pronounce. Yeah. Can you paint us a picture of what life is like for people in it these used areas to be, of Kenya? It used to be, and, and unfortunately to some extent it is still the same, places, uh, a huge shanty town of shacks of corrugated iron and mud, no sanitation, no drainage system, no sanitation, no potable water, no electricity. And uh, people are masked to live like this without any security of tenure. People could be evicted at any time. Criminality to some extent and disease because waterborne disease and any kind of disease. But also ingenuity because it's humankind. I mean, there's still... Humankind, the slums are generated uh, mostly by... Uh, development which leaves behind rural development. So people from rural areas come to towns to look for a way to survive, to look for some job in the informal sector, which is to say in the informal economy, the economy where you, you find a daily job, you perform something on behalf of somebody. And as there is no shelter for them, the, this kind of realities, the shanty towns, the slums uh, come up, are formed. And they become part of 
uh, an urban setting, the 30% of the humankind lives in this kind of setting. It's 30%. It's 30%. It's, uh, the Islam dimension is one of the dimensions of the humankind. People try to, to forget it because it's very disturbing. But it's one of the dimensions of the humankind. So, How many people in Nairobi live like that? I don't know the numbers, but I think in Gorokocho it's 120,000, in Kibera it's 700,000. People say it's a million, but I think it's less. When I was there 10 years ago, estimation was 60% of the population of Nairobi lived in this kind of setting, which is huge. Huge. So what sort of skills were then you finding there? So people there, I mean... Every kind of skill, because people have to survive. So artisanal skills in cutting, stitching. People were making shoes out of second-hand shoes sent from Europe through charity. So people were cutting wow. them, replacing the sole with the tire, with the recycled tire to make them stronger. So shoemakers, shoe repair, making bags, making garments out of second-hand garments, reconditioned, so tailoring, every kind of uh, cleaning, building, because people were, in the morning, they leave the slum to go to offer their job whenever there is a construction site or something like this. You find everything. Can you tell us the story of Steve Brass? Steve passed away less than two years ago, suddenly, very sad. Steve was an entrepreneur, an entrepreneur, a real entrepreneur, who had a very small informal business in a shack. And by receiving work from the Ethical Fashion Initiative and also other projects, other people, Steve started to grow his own business. So he built a proper workshop. And he was so melting he down brass. He was melting make. down brass out of automobile parts or recycled metal, melting down brass and making jewels. Making jewels in a very simple way. By working with us and with other projects, he also acquired the design capacity. So not only he created the proper showroom with some health and safety measures and all the rest. Because before, he's just boiling just up his furnace. Bo- in, the, in, a furnace in a furnace with a gas thing and, uh, and in, in a shack, very unhealthy, very dangerous. But then he built a proper workshop, a showroom. He built a showroom and he developed his own collection. And one of his clients was Vivian Westwood. Yes, through us with Vivian Westwood. We made a lot of the uh, metal fittings of Vivian Westwood bag in there. Then I think he passed away, if I remember well, of heart attack suddenly. It's extremely sad. Quite an amount of people we used to work with passed away. Not not a a big amount, but we have uh, a record of that. Because when you come from extreme poverty, even when you get out of that, your body may be mined by the suffering you endured before. So you have that. Thanks God we have also a lot of people who struggled their way out of poverty and who changed life, who left the slums, who live in an apartment, who send the kids to school, who have health care, insurance, who have a pension fund. You can imagine from the informal economy to having a pension fund for your retirement or having a healthcare insurance. It's beautiful. The number that you that I last read about roughly how many artisans you have 
given gainful employment to was 7,000 in Africa. Is that in right all, or wrong? all over Africa and intermittent employment. Now, in Kenya alone, 1,200 are regularly employed in the supply chain of artisan fashion, uh, the company we have privatized there. Yeah. So this is a regular employment. 7,000 were the people to whom we used to send work intermittently, two months, then one, then no, one month, no, then two months. Now it's this. We have a couple of thousand of people engaged in between Burkina and Mali. We have, so all these numbers are growing, but the difference is that now, that we are stabilizing them. They become regular suppliers. These 1,200 in Kenya are cooperatives. They're not individual artisans like, like, as they were before. What year was it when you went to the UN and said, this is my idea, give me 12 months? It was 2007. Do you think they believed that at the end of the period of time when they'd review it, it would have worked? Yes, there was a, a visionary. The executive director of the ITC was a lady from Jamaica, Patricia Francis, who believed in that. I will always be grateful to her for this because uh, she, got it. she was not a bureaucrat. She was a person uh, uh, with vision. And she said, I give you 12 months. I give you a budget. If you fail, you are out. But she did it. And it was not to be taken for granted. Can you just run through a few of the brands that you have worked with along the way? So we know yeah. that you've collaborated long-term with Mimco, which is fab. Oh, yes. With Vivian Westwood, which is fantastic yes. and ongoing. Karen Walker, who's with a friend. Karen Walker, she absolutely. Was on this podcast. We yeah. talked about you. Karen Walker, beautiful, beautiful work together. I love Karen and her family. She's a beautiful person. We used to work with Sass and Bide, Heidi and Sarah Jane a lot um, when they were there. In, and I, I have a very... A very, f- very fond feelings for them and for Heidi, for her family and everybody. My friend David Briskin here in Melbourne, who put us in touch with Mimco and who remains a friend, even if we don't meet so often. Who is now heading up the newly formed Australian Fashion Council. Uh, they told me that. I sent him an email yesterday when I arrived saying, David... Uh, big hug, yeah, yeah. <laughs> big hug to you, and uh, and then Stella McCartney, and then United Arrows in Japan, and then Eden, Eden, you're doing beautiful uh, things oh, with them. It's beautiful. beautiful. I was looking at it before we yes. met. I mean, the made beautiful Kenya bags, things. the Ghana prints. As I well. am a very good friend of Julien Labad, the new CEO of Eden. He's restructuring the company in a way which I love. But their whole thing is made in Africa. It's and made under, in Africa, I know yes. Danielle Sherman recently moved on, but under the three years that she was there, she transitioned made in Africa to 95% of the collection. Yeah. So and Julien is doing a fantastic job on that. We love each other. We used to work a lot. We used in the past to work a lot, a lot, a lot with Chanlu. We worked a lot with, with Osclen. And then we've done a lot in the past with uh, Carmina Campus, with uh, uh, big distributors in Italy like Coop or these kind of groups. We worked quite a bit with African designers or small brands. Well, that's what I wanted to finish up talking about because I think, as you know, I'm such a fan of the work that you do and it's such an inspiring story and an ongoing source of inspiration. But I'm also interested in the idea of working with African designers on Made in Africa. So it's not just 
European or Australian or American Absolutely. brands then Absolutely. producing in Africa. It's actually sold in Africa. It's designed yeah. by African designers. Let's yeah. talk a bit about some of those designers yeah, you've supported. The, the African designers are a, a whole universe. First of all, they are the African designers who still live in Africa and operate in Africa. The African designers who move to London or outside Africa, but who produce in Africa, like Cindy Zocumalo. Lawrence Airline, these brands that work with us quite continuously, Dan Demand. In the past, we have collaborated and we remained very good friends with Studio 189, uh, with Sophie so Zinga, I with met Christy them. Brown. You met yeah, them. Yeah, I met Sophie with Zinga all, in With Milan. all these people. Now we... we she, so she is based in Sierra Leone. In Sierra Leone. Now we have a small number of new designers that are coming up in Burkina and in Mali. And they are local brands. They only work in the local market. And as we are very present in these two countries, we have created a program for them. And in the next two years, we'll devote ourselves to mentoring these young brands. I want to create Bamako style because Bamako is a very cool place. It's a very Explain. beautiful place. Bamako is the capital of a country which is in troubles because of war, extremism, and all the rest, but which has an, an incredible culture, an incredible cultural heritage. Incredible. Bamako, Ouagadougou, Burkina, Mali, they have a beautiful cultural heritage. And the style, let's talk about the and style. And the music, mm. and photography, and art, and architecture, everything. But also so, the importance of that evolution of, of the programme, Yes. That involves all stakeholders so that it really all is producing for absolutely. Africa too, which is so important because I always worry about that whole colonial saviour thing. No, no, absolutely. We have to get more of African designers on board. And now, thanks God, you see an emerging African fashion market. Yeah. And Which fashion is weeks. Good. Fashion weeks. My friend Omoyemi Akarele, the work she does in, in the Lagos Fashion Week. I always call Omoyemi the princess of Africa. And she gets very upset with me. She says, Shut up. Don't say this. She's a nice person. And yeah, absolutely. And you have that in, in South Africa. Africa is on the move. Yeah. Africa is not what people think. Africa is a place with many issues, many problems, but also a place with the sub-Saharan Africa, with a lot of things going, with a lot of change. Uh, you have Alara, the boutique in Lagos, designed by Sir David Ajaye with all the brands. Oh, I know about things. him. Yeah, uh, you, have, you, you have things in Burkina. You have some places in, with incredible, stunning architecture by Francis Keret, one of the architects of today, stunning, but really stunning. There's an opera village which, where there is a clinic and the village which is stunning. Yeah, you have things in there. I just want to finish up by asking you two more things. One is, I know that it must be so very much, there's no simple answer, but what's one of the most important lessons that you've learned from your journey doing this? First of all, you have to hope. Hope, 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 hope. People say, ah, there is no hope. Ah, it is impossible. Whenever people tell you it is impossible, there is no hope. Or people tell you this industry doesn't work this way, this is usually rubbish. <laughs> Change is always possible. You have to have hope. You have to engage. You have to engage with people. The other lesson is continuity. You must remain there. Even when you are in the darkest moments, even when, you, even when you don't see hopes, because there are moments in which you, you feel really lost, but you have to remain there. Continuity 
is what matters. If you continue, you win. It's continuity. Isn't, isn't it Winston Churchill who said, you can fail, you can win, but what matters is continuity. It's absolutely true. Hope because this gives you the stamina and continuity. Stay where you are and keep on doing this, even if things don't look well, but you have to continue. And the last point is speak to people. Get people engaged. Speak to people. Because the humankind is, at its bottom, very positive. And if you speak to people, you get them engaged. Speak to people, get people engaged. And if they say no, if they mock you, speak to them again <laughs> and speak to them again. And never underestimate the power of changing someone's life like you did to me. Yeah. <laughs> you did. Do you know what happened was I said... This is the most is beautiful the thing. I put the, at the end of our interview, I said, oh, Simone, listening to you is so inspiring and I feel like, look at you all going, changing the world and I'm just a journalist. And you said, no, 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 no. Go and do what you do. The, but said, absolutely. Because you communicate... <laughs> you book, so I but, did. But, sorry, you communicate this message to people. You are the key person to communicate this to people. Journalism is so important and it will be even more important in the future and because it's all about this and listeners also you have this power too because this is all about conversation so when you listen to this and you think what can I do the answer is go and start these conversations go and, and start and this conversation out. and find out and talk about this and do the podcast and get social media and get people engaged absolutely Hooray. it's difficult but but it's great it's great <laughs> we spend our lives struggling for something so much the better to struggle for something big than for something small. No, do I struggle for my uh, to buy a new car? Do I struggle uh, this kind of rubbish? I struggle for something big, and then let's see. At the end of my days, I will look behind. I will see all the all the mistakes I have made because we all make mistakes. But I will also see some positive thing, and this will give me the stamina to face what comes after. <laughs> so great. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks that to you, Claire. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be with you. Well, it was Grazie. lovely. Grazie mille. Oh, it's getting hard. My parents feel that I'm defending you. I tell them all that they are wrong because I love you. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in, best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis. So I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you, my parents feel that this is a waste of time. I tell you we're okay, I won't admit that I am blind. My friends will feel that I'm carrying a steel. I tell them all that they are wrong. Because I love you, because I love you. Because I love you Because I love you